Good news. My new book is finally here. It's called Handbook for the Heartbroken, A Woman's Path from Devastation to Rebirth, and you can order it now wherever books are sold. I wrote this book after the five-year span between 2016 and 2020 when I experienced serial heartbreaks that rocked literally every area of my life, my health, relationships, money, career, social status, and even my very sense of self. And along the way, I really got to experience firsthand how dysfunctional our culture's relationship is to loss. I saw how we live in a heartbreak illiterate world that's obsessed with success and shackled with isolation and ignorant of how valuable our suffering can be for our growth and our evolution, not only as individuals, but also as a collective. So this book expands the conversation around loss beyond just breakups and bereavement, although we definitely cover those too, in order to include falls from grace of all kinds, personal, professional, and collective. So whether you're experiencing hardship now or know you have past hurts that are holding you back in certain ways and still need healing, this book is here to support you. It's also a great book to gift to clients, family members, friends, just other women in your world who are going through a challenging time. It will show you that it's only through fully turning toward your heartbreak with support, courage, and compassion that you can heal. So within the loving pages of this book, you will have full permission to fall apart and slowly, organically find your way back to greater wholeness. I'm truly excited to share this with you. It was not a joy to live this journey, but it really was a joy to write it. And you can find it again wherever books are sold and the audio version of the book is available as well. If you would like some gifts to accompany you on your heartbreak journey, you can get those at handbookfortheheartbroken.com. Those are free. Whenever you order books, you can just send in your invoice or your receipt and we'll send you those accompanying gifts. Enjoy. Hello. Welcome to the Sarah Avon Stover podcast, a space to come home to your inner wisdom. I'm Sarah, best-selling author and teacher of women's yoga, meditation, and spirituality. And this podcast was born out of my own desire to hear Dharma talks, which are what the Buddhist tradition calls wisdom teachings, through the distinct lens and voice of the sacred feminine. Here, I'll share these very talks, along with rich conversations about all different facets of the feminine spiritual journey. But above all, I created this because I believe that when a woman gets still and quiet enough to hear her inner wisdom, she's able to live her true path in the world. I hope this podcast helps you do just this. I'm happy you're here. Let's dive in. Hello, hello. It's good to be back here with you. Welcome to any new listeners joining us today. And welcome back if you've been here before. I love connecting with you in this way. And I don't know how it got to be August already. I'm starting to feel the summer wind down happening. 
It's been a very full summer over here for me in a good way. Lots of family visits and outdoor adventures and I'm looking forward to my annual two-week summer vacation at the end of this month before diving into the fall. But between now and then here on the podcast, we're still enjoying a special summer series on women's yoga and meditation. And I share this series to give you a taste of my upcoming 200-hour online women's yoga and meditation teacher training, which also happens to be the world's first women's yoga teacher training. And I'm offering it online this year for the first time, and I extended it to a 200-hour program this year for the first time. So with COVID restrictions coming back, at least here in the U.S., and a new season approaching, it feels right for us to gather this way, starting at the end of September. Over the course of four three-day weekends between then and early January, we'll meet to go deep together into practice as a community. So this is both a 200-hour Yoga Alliance teacher training and a practice intensive in women's yin and slow flow yoga, Buddhist meditation, and psychological healing and maturity. Of course, all adapted for our feminine anatomy, hearts, and minds. It's for you if you want to teach and inspire women in your own community, or if you simply feel hungry for a retreat-like experience and sisterhood to nourish you as we finish out 2021. Early registration with some great discounts, as well as a five-part payment plan, ends this Thursday, August 12th, and registration closes for good on September 9th. If you're curious and want to learn more, you can visit womensyogateachertraining.com, womensyogateachertraining.com. If this feels right for you, I would so love to have you join us. And now for today's guest. Today, we're welcoming onto the podcast, Constanza Eliana Shinea. And as a white woman, and I'm talking about myself here in the yoga and wellness space, I still have a lot to learn about anti-racism, the decolonization of yoga, and how to bring more inclusivity into yoga and wellness spaces. And Constanza Eliana is talking to us today about these very things. She's devoted herself to these topics and infuses them with a lot of wisdom and passion. Constanza Eliana Shinea is a brown Latinx anti-racism educator, producer, and certified yoga instructor who has over 10 years of experience in the wellness industry and over 400 hours of training in yoga, trauma, and anti-racism. She began teaching and consulting after noticing a need for diversity and representation in the wellness industry. She now teaches yoga teachers and practitioners and wellness entrepreneurs how to decolonize their practices, create equity for teachers of color, and build inclusive spaces in the community. She has been featured in Well and Good, Speaking of Racism podcast, Yoga Journal, The Rising Woman Project, and many more. 
She's the creator of trainings like Embody Inclusivity and Unpacking Spiritual Bypass, and is the host of Decolonizing Yoga and Wellness, a web series featuring BIPOC leaders of color who are taking up space in the wellness industry. She currently lives in Los Angeles, California, and travels across the U.S. teaching and consulting. You can find her online at embodiedinclusivity.com. And now for my conversation with Constanza Eliana Shinea. Hey, welcome, Constanza Eliana. We are so grateful to have you here with us today. I know we're going to learn a lot from you and be inspired by you. And we always start our conversations here with a personal check-in. So I'd love for you to share with us where you're joining us from today and how you're doing at the levels of body, heart, and mind. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, So I am situated on Tongva land, known as Los Angeles, California in the U.S. And how I'm situated in my body and my mind, I'm feeling pretty good today. Um, Today is my busy day of the week, but um, I'm in really good spirits. I'm, excuse me, I'm doing a lot of um, projects, really important projects and campaigns that have a lot to do with social justice and uh, accountability. So I'm really excited um, for today and all of the things that we're going to get to accomplish. Um, so yeah, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling really good. Great. Well, I hope we're able to touch into some of those projects in our conversation today. They sound they sound interesting. Um, and with all that's going on in the world today, I'm curious, and with all that you have on your plate, I'm curious what activities or things or state of mind are helping you the most to just stay grounded and sane in these times? Yeah. So right now I'm really going through a process of reclamation. So, um, and I'm sure we'll go into my background, but I'm Boricua, um, uh, otherwise known as Puerto Rico. (laughs) And, um, and for people who don't really know the history of Puerto Rico or even the current status of Puerto Rico, it's, it's a colonized territory of the U.S. So a lot of us, um, you know, both living on the island and in the diaspora, sometimes uh, assimilation and colonization causes a lot of erasure of certain culture, cultural practices, and um, especially when it comes to Taino practices and Yoruba practices. Um, and so for a long time, I was really searching outside of myself for healing practices because I didn't realize by way of colonization that I really had, my culture had its own ways of healing and wellness and all of that. Um, so now in my, you know, mid thirties, I am going through a process of reclaiming what those cultural spiritual practices were that were passed down, but also that were, um, you know, kind of taken away from my family and uh, by way of people who are really aiming to preserve those cultural practices. I'm learning a lot um, from them and um, utilizing mentors to really reclaim a lot of my ancestral practices. So it's kind of where I'm at right now. That sounds really, that sounds really nourishing and really interesting. And I'm curious 
if you feel inclined to share, like what are some of those practices that you're reclaiming and how have you found those mentors to just relearn those ancestral ways of healing? Yeah, it's a lot of work um, for people of color that have been, you know, stripped of their culture, stripped of their homeland, um, or have had to move away for various reasons. Um, it The process of reclamation is can be really difficult. It's very emotional. It's very, uh, at times it can be very traumatizing. It can feel isolating and overwhelming. So it's taken many, many, many years for me to get to this point where I feel close um, to getting to that place of reclamation, but not quite. It's still going to take me a lot more research, a lot more mentorship, and a lot more um, historical understanding of what is fact and what is fiction. Um, And one of the things that I I think is um, not really talked about in the spiritual space a lot is there's a lot of... uh, there's a lot of snake oil. (laughs) You know, there's a lot of things that are passed on as tradition that aren't actually tradition. Um, There's a lot of things that are passed on as fact that aren't. Um, And, you know, maybe there is some fact to it, but not 100%. So it takes a lot of uh, critical analysis and a lot of historical research to figure out what that is and how to move forward from there. So, Um, I don't want to make it sound like, you know, it's this rainbows and butterflies process. It's been actually really frustrating and really challenging. But at the same time, it's really beautiful. So some of the things that I have learned from my own culture that actually were passed down um, are by way of things that seem very familiar to Americans or even to Europeans. So I think everyone is pretty aware of the tarot. um, And that is, you know, something that's like really kind of picking up steam in the spiritual circles is like, you know, read tarot cards, read oracle cards. Like that's the way that um, you can practice self-care, divination, all of those things. Um, And so in my culture, uh, what I've learned is that we had these just everyday playing cards. They were Spanish playing cards. Um, They're called baraja. And, um, And what I didn't realize is that that's basically the tarot for my culture. That's what we use for divination. And if you do a little bit of research, there are lots of different cultures that use um, cardology, in essence, as divinational tools to connect to spirit and to ancestry. So um, that was a really cool experience for me to realize that these things that I thought were just, you know, regular everyday playing cards that we would used during events, family dinners, you know, or just whenever we were bored, um, that that is actually a a place of connection between ourselves and spirit world. Um, And so that's what I'm learning to reclaim right now is uh, moving away from the European standard of tarot and really learning how to apply divination practice into something that is much more familiar to my ancestors, which is really what you're supposed to do with divination. You're supposed to use things that are very familiar, that have a connection. And that's not really something that you're taught in the spiritual realm. You're just told, you know, use this thing and it'll help you. Um, but what I learned is that, you know, I wasn't as fully connected to spirit whenever I did use European um, tarot cards. 
because number one, I was speaking in a language that my ancestors don't understand, which is English. Um, and I was also using imagery that didn't relate to my ancestry, which is, you know, the, the images of white folks and um, in, in outfits that aren't really historical to my, um, my ancestral culture. So it's stuff like that um, when you really start to dig in and as a person of color reclaiming something that is, you know, perhaps has been assimilated or has been lost or erased, um, it's, it's a really interesting journey to realize like, oh, you know, once you really start to think about this and really make a connection, um, it's actually really, really amazing. So that's kind of what I'm learning right now. And I'm doing that through mentorship and um, through others who have really um, hung on to keeping spiritual practices intact. And that has been passed down from family to family um, throughout the centuries. So that's, that's one really cool thing that I'm learning. That does sound really cool. And I just, I just acknowledge what you shared, how that's both really nourishing for you during these times and how it has just had a lot of different flavors of frustration and, and trauma and just all the, all of that mixed in as you've been searching to, to reclaim these pieces and to to find the people to learn them from. And I'm just happy for you that you found this and that you're, you're learning it and just bringing it through. It sounds really, really interesting. Thank you. And I'd love for us to kind of go back in time a bit and just to, to see where this work in spirituality and social justice began to germinate for you. So can you share with us, and you've already, you've already revealed it here a bit, um, where you were born and what key childhood experiences did you have that inspired you to do the work that you're doing in the world now? Yeah, happy to. So um, I was actually born in New York. My parents uh, moved to New York to go to Cornell University. Um, they went there by way of scholarship uh, and a lot of people don't realize that both the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords of New York were really instrumental in during the civil rights era and after civil rights um, to ensure that universities uh, allowed people of color to study and to study in an accessible way. So um, all of the fighting and all of the work really essential work that the Black Panther Party and the Young Lords uh, created an avenue for people like my parents to be able to go to a, an Ivy League um, university and be able to study. And so that's where they met. So I was born there. And then shortly after I was born, they moved back to Puerto Rico uh, once they finished school. And that's where I was raised. Um, so I was raised there until I was about seven or eight years old. And uh, the situation in Puerto Rico was as such that my parents didn't really have as many opportunities as they would have had in the U.S., which is a reality that a lot of Puerto Ricans have had to um, endure and, and are challenged by. There's actually a lot more Boricuas living uh, in the diaspora than there are uh, Boricuas living in the island. Um, so they decided to move back to the United States so that my dad could become a professor and my mom could pursue her art. And so I've been living in the United States ever since. Um, so 
So that's kind of a little bit of my, you know, youth and, and background. And uh, for a long time, I didn't realize just how much assimilation I had fallen into. I had to learn a new language, assimilate into a new culture, um, you know, adopt uh, practices and a way of thinking that I didn't quite understand. And so the way that I handled that as, you know, an eight-year-old child was to completely immerse myself and assimilate as much as possible. Um, I was one of those kids that was very heavily bullied by, you know, for being foreign, for looking different, for having different type of food, for my parents having accents, for myself having an accent. And so I worked really hard for a really long time um, to kind of erase those parts of myself that other people didn't understand and that they made fun of. So it wasn't until high school um, that I found a, uh, a group of people that, you know, came from my culture, which was Dominicans and Puerto Ricans. And I really learned by way of them, and they didn't know it at the time, but I really learned how to embrace my culture again. But of course, like assimilation and colonization is as such where, you know, you kind of bounce back and forth from embracing your culture to denying it, to embracing it, to canceling it out altogether. So I really bounced around from, you know, in high school and college around identity and, and what it meant to be Puerto Rican, what it meant to be American and kind of bouncing between the two. And so that created a huge um, traumatic <laughs> experience. It created a lived experience that was very uncomfortable. So I, of course, like many other people of color, fell into self-medicating. Um, I self-medicated by way of alcohol and really abused it for many, many years. So right around that time where I was trying to figure things out, utilizing alcohol really heavily, um, I, I really fell into the space where I wanted to a change, but I didn't really know how that was going to come about. And, you know, I was poor at the time. I couldn't afford, of course, to, you know, go to rehab or anything like that. So um, I actually decided to go to the spiritual route. So I found a local yoga studio, started practicing there, and that's kind of how my wellness practice kind of really kicked in. And I say wellness in, the, in a very Western sense of the word. <laughs> it, it was a very Westernized understanding of wellness. It wasn't, you know, very holistic at all. But that was kind of my gateway, my avenue to changing my lifestyle. So that's what I did. I practiced um, Right. Well, as it stands right now, I had been practicing yoga for almost 11 years and teaching for about eight to nine years. Um, so when I got my certification, that was like really the stamp on I'm fully committed to this yoga practice. I'm all in. I want to become a teacher and I want to share this wisdom with other people. Um, and so for about eight to nine years, I, I, I did that full time. And then I decided to take a break. I was really frustrated with the way that the yoga industry specifically um, treated people of color and in particular teachers of color. And the yoga industry is really heavily dominated by whiteness. It's, it's very dominated by white women specifically, uh, women and femmes. And so it was a very, uh, while it was a very nourishing experience to make connections with my students, 
at the same time, it was a very frustrating and isolating experience dealing with all of the whiteness by way of yoga studio owners, other yoga teachers, mentors, etc. So um, I decided to take a break and really take a step back, not from my yoga practice, but just from the yoga industry and really decide how did I want to continue being in an industry that, that didn't really embrace me and didn't have really any intention to embrace me. And that's how it felt. So uh, for a year, uh, as I was taking time off of teaching, I studied a lot of anti-racism work, decolonial understanding, decolonial theory and text really understanding my own culture and how I came to assimilate into a culture that wasn't my own and really embraced all of these ideas of the American dream, for instance, and picking yourself up by the bootstraps and all of those theories that were told as children of color and as people of color to embrace. So through that understanding, I realized how I wanted to, um, how I really wanted to move forward. And that was to fully integrate my learnings and my understanding of social justice into my practice. And, and that's what I did. So for the last three years, that's what I've been doing. And um, I am currently taking a break from teaching yoga, but yoga is something that will always stay with me. I always like to tell people that um, if you practice yoga correctly in the way that it's intended to, you, you never quit yoga you continue practicing, the lessons will never leave you. Um, but sometimes, you know, it, it takes a little bit of distance from the industry in order for you to really appreciate what it is that you're practicing. Yeah, thank you for sharing more about your journey. And it sounds like it has been quite a journey. <laughs> and as myself, as a white woman who's been in the yoga industry, a little bit on the on the fringe on the fringe of it, <laughs> um, and a lot of white women in the you know involved in yoga listening to this. I'm curious as as a woman of color, as a teacher of color. You said that you know you you saw you experienced a lot of things that made you not feel embraced and. I'm curious if you can share with us like some of the things that you experienced or that you saw that just led you to to break away from the industry? Well, I think that first, you know, as we're talking about some of these things, I think it's important for folks who identify and have the lived experience of being white, that they understand that they will never truly be able to um, understand the lived experience of people of color. Um, it's important to listen to people of color and it's important to um, learn from us. But there's always going to be a little bit of a distance because socially it's very acceptable for whiteness to be the norm and to be the standard. And so when you live your life through that lived experience, it's very difficult for any one person to truly understand the lived experience of, of someone who doesn't have that same privilege or that same understanding. So, you know, whenever I talk to white folks in my workshops and my trainings or one-on-one, -on -one, I always tell them when you're listening to people of color, you have to 
step your ego to the side and not make everything about you and what you have seen or haven't seen or what you believe or don't believe. That is a a very important um, skill for whiteness or for white folks to learn because a lot of times we'll tell our stories and whether we're asked to or not, and we are unvalidated and we're gaslit and, you know, a lot of microaggressions start to come out and it becomes a very toxic environment for us. And what we're, we're not, when people of color share their stories, they're doing so understanding that there might be harm that is caused. Um, And that harm is going to come in a multitude of ways. And sometimes whiteness can turn very violent, but other times it can be very covert. So, you know, as people are listening and kind of taking in what I'm saying, really, you know, try to open yourself up to not falling into the individualism that whiteness can really tend to fall into where your ego steps in and says, oh, that, that can't be true. Or even the shock, you know, factor. I think a lot of people tend to be shocked when we say certain things and um, it can create a level of distance between uh, learning and transforming. And so, you know, just kind of applying all of that, um, a lot of the things that I personally experienced, I want to say, were really just my experiences. I am a a person who has brown skin, but I do not experience um, anti-Blackness. And so that is a different level of racism. I also don't experience anti-Asian violence and I don't experience, um, you know, every level of racism. So these are just my, my own understandings from my lived experience. But a lot of the things that were specific to yoga um, were the dismissal. So I, I experienced a lot of stereotypes, particularly by yoga studio owners um, who had a lot of power over me and even from some yoga teachers that, that were my seniors. So they might have been my mentors or um, they might have just been older than me. But <clears throat> a lot of times I would experience, you know, being told to do a lot of the cleaning, a lot of the administrative work, Um, simply because I was brown. I remember one specific instance where it wasn't a studio owner or a teacher, it was actually a student. Um, I was teaching a class, but I had also been doing the siding in of the class prior. And so the student had, you know, seen me and experienced me as the person that was siding them in. And then when I was done with the sign-ins, I went into the room, started gathering all the props and let everybody know, you know, here's, here are the props that you're going to need for today's practice and went to the front of the room and the level of shock on their face, I will never forget. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And they, you know, also kind of dismissed me a little bit too, uh, almost like looking around the room, like, is she for real? And I experienced that a lot a lot in, in very subtle ways. He, his reaction was probably the most uh, blatant. Um, but I later learned that they had uh, gone to a different class and, and told them, you know, did you know that your, um, your employee is, is teaching yoga classes? And what they meant by employee, I understood on a very visceral level where, you know, my white coworker didn't understand why they would use that language. But brown people, particular people who, um, you know, can pass as immigrants, um, 
particularly like Mexican immigrants or South American immigrants, we tend to be treated very, um, very differently. We tend to be treated as servants, as maids, as workers. Um, we tend to be treated very poorly um, by how people treat us when, you know, we're talking about yoga studios. So particularly in the check-in process, or um, if you know a person of color is. Um, helping out in the studio and they're cleaning the floor, for instance, uh, we're looked down upon. And it's very blatant. It's it's both through attitude, through nonverbal communication, and also through the things that people say. So that was always my experience. Um, whether I was a volunteer at a studio, teaching at a studio, working at a studio, or even managing a studio, I was always treated very poorly um, by both students and teachers alike. Uh, so that's just one you know, experience that I can share. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. And just like, I'm my heart, I'm feeling my heart as, uh, as you share that, that that was your, that was your experience. And I also appreciated you prefacing that, yeah, as white, as white people, as white women, we can't ever know what it's like for you, but it's, it's helpful to hear, to hear about your experience and just to, just to gain more insight into that. And I mean, how amazing that now you are going into those very communities that you felt so just dishonored or I don't dishonored or not embraced by mm -hmm. to to serve them. And I know that some of the workshops and, and consulting that you do is you you help others to find their blind spots in their practices or their businesses, whether those be yoga or wellness uh, businesses, and to begin to create truly inclusive spaces without spiritual bypassing. And I know this is a really vast topic, but I'm wondering if you can share just like one or two of the ways that, that you help people to do that. Or that, or that those listening today can, can start to do that for themselves? Yeah, I think it's a good question. It's definitely very well-intentioned. And I think it takes a lot of time and a lot of learning. Um, it's not really something I can just give one thing and, uh, and that's the thing that's going to make a space inclusive. I think inclusion really incorporates a lot of different skills, a lot of um, humanizing, a lot of understanding, and a lot of incorporation. So what I mean by that is, you know, you really have to not just listen, not just learn, not just read, not just take workshops, but you have to actually implement what you're learning. Um, and because, you know, as I said earlier, it's very difficult for whiteness to really step outside of itself and um, truly understand the lived experience uh, of people of color. Um, it's it's going to take time. It's going to take a lot of time and it takes a lot of skill. And that implementation also needs to be done by way of relationship. Um, you can't create inclusive spaces without having a deep understanding of how proper relationship needs to happen in a space. So one of the things that I, I always hear in, in wellness and in the yoga industry in particular is, you know, we need to be, um, we need to be in right relationship. But a lot of people don't really understand what that means across lines of difference and across lines of culture. 
because there's a difference between um, being being friendly and being inclusive. There's a, there's a line, there's a very different distinction. So if I'm friendly towards somebody, um, that doesn't necessarily mean I'm inclusive towards them. There could be a wall that I might perhaps be building and that friendliness might either be one of two things. It could either be um, me trying to build up a wall so as to protect myself so that this person doesn't, um, you know, there might be a fear of conflict, right? So this, per- if I'm nice to this person, if I'm friendly to this person, then we won't have any conflict, but I can still keep my distance from them on a relational level versus if you are aiming to be inclusive, then what that means is you have to build relationship with the people that you're with. And when you build relationship, you begin to build trust when that relationship is built on authenticity and honesty. And one of the biggest things that I see where people, uh, particularly studio owners or yoga teachers miss in the inclusion process and learning is that they forget to humanize the person that they are attempting to be in relationship with. And they instead tokenize the person and walk on eggshells around the person. And it creates a level of distance that also fosters distrust. And for people of color, we tend to be, just depending on our lived experience, we tend to be a little more distrusting of white folks than we are of other people of color for that very reason. We experience so much gaslighting, we experience so much harm, and we also experience so much distrust um, by way of you know, white people's actions, to be quite honest, whether they are friends or not. Uh, one of the uh, best books that I always recommend for specifically for people of color is a book that was written specifically um, about the Asian American experience. And there's a a point in the book where they talk about racial melancholia and, um, and that, you know, that terminology might be new for, for white folks, but for once people of color really learn about it, we realize that there, the lived experience that we have just by being othered in society creates a level of grief that is really hard to articulate. And so when you're removed from from your culture and when you are othered by society, what you begin to feel is a level of distance between yourself and the dominant culture, which is whiteness, particularly in in, in the West, so the United States. And so that level of distance creates that uh, uh, level of distress. So naturally, people of color, for the most part, will create a certain level of distance between themselves and white folks. And how that appears to whiteness is that people of color are standoffish. They don't like you. They don't want to uh, they don't want anything to do with you. They're aggressive. You know, all of these stereotypes that we hear. So that. Um, having that level of understanding is really essential when you are starting to do inclusion work because what gets missed a lot is that relationship component. And if you don't have proper relationship and you don't humanize the people that you are trying to have proper relationship to, and if you don't understand the history behind um, the dehumanization of people of color, then you're never going to be able to get to an inclusive space. Um, And as you know, space holders, right? Like yoga teachers, Reiki people, um, tarot card readers, even 
anybody who is in wellness that is building, um, you know, building space, building community, space holding, that requires a level of self-awareness that if you are a white person, you also have to have the self-awareness of your whiteness in order to create that inclusion or it's not going to happen. So that's just something that I can provide um, as a guide, as a path while you are doing your learning, your workshops, reading your books, et cetera. Yeah, that's really helpful. And yeah, just and just like you were sharing when we started with your your path of reclamation, it's like it's not a quick fix. It's it's an intensive um, long-term undertaking. Exactly. And, yeah. Yes. And, and a lot of um, people want that quick fix, right? Like yeah. th- this happens a lot in the yoga industry in particular, right? Like we love the 200 hour trainings. <laughs> we yeah. love the weekend intensives. We love the two hour workshops, right? Because we feel if I take this two hour workshop, then I can master this one skill, but to master anything, means that you have to spend years and years and years of commitment, years of practice, years of implementation, years of understanding in order for you to get there. But instead in the West, we're so used to hearing, you can become a yoga teacher by after taking a 200 hour training over the course of two weeks. We're so used to hearing that, that we take that as truth. But, and so we then start to apply that as we're learning anti-racism or as we are attempting to be more inclusive, right? And so the, the, that ends up creating inadvertently more harm because you're still applying a colonial mindset to essentially something that is attempting to de, be decolonial. And so whiteness will never be able to fully decolonize anything, um, but it can attempt to create a path towards that decolonization that can happen through right relationship. And really it's people of color that end up decolonizing a space, but whiteness will never get there if it continues to think in a colonial way. So the way to get out of that colonial mindset is to remember everything takes time. And when we're talking specifically about spirituality and wellness, nothing is a quick fix. And that's where I was, you know, mentioning the snake oil, right? Everyone loves the quick fix. Everyone loves the people who say, you know, do this for 10 days and it'll cure your anxiety. <laughs> do this for, you know, however long and, you know, you'll be cured of your depression. So that's something that I heard a lot, but it's not reality. And you can't apply that same mentality to relationships, to anti-racism, to anything that requires time, commitment, compassion, and humanity. Well said, well said. And so this brings us to like zooming out a little bit more into, into the larger scope of the work that you're doing with social, social justice and inclusivity. And I'd love for you to speak about what, what the decolonization movement looks like in the wellness and yoga community just at, at in terms of that bigger picture mm-hmm. right now? It's a really good question. And I always love getting this question because 
um, it's not what you are used to hearing. <laughs> Great. So, <laughs> so a lot of people love to say, you know, t- uh, take this workshop to decolonize yoga or take this workshop to decolonize spirituality. Um, and the reality is, is that decolonization is a, is, is a totally different mentality. Uh, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of commitment and a lot of learning. Um, and unlearning. So when we're thinking about decolonization, what we're really talking about is actually people of color um, who are marginalized, who are oppressed, who are othered in society is actually empowering them to be able to get out of the colonial grasp, right? The colonial mentality that is internalized by us by way of white dominant culture. And once we are begin to decolonize our minds, then we start to decolonize spaces. Then we start to uh, really dig deep into what is it going to take to decolonize spirituality? What is it going to take to dismantle white supremacy? What is it going to take to do all of these things that, you know, are buzzwords right now? So whenever I see a workshop that says like decolonize yoga, typically it is marketed towards white folks Typically, it's only about two to four hours worth of content, and it literally just scratches the surface of very basic concepts um, that are good for beginners, but they definitely don't actually decolonize. And also, it's important to understand that decolonization takes many, many, many years when it comes to mindset, but in actual implementation, it takes entire communities to decolonize. So in order for, for instance, a lot of people want to decolonize yoga, right? I was certainly one of those people. For a long time, I was like, I want to learn decolonized yoga. Well, the problem here is that we're talking about the West. We are talking about a practice, a spiritual practice that has been very heavily appropriated. And through that appropriation, it has been whitewashed. And through that whitewashing, it has been watered down. So the essential deep practices, the deep theories, the deep philosophies are so out of the norm of what we are actually learning every day in a studio setting. They're so much deeper, so much more nuanced and so much more complex than we actually understand. Because again, in the West and the status quo tells us, I just want to learn the quick fix. And so what's the quick fix? Asana. So as soon as yoga hit the West, it was all about the physical practice. It was all about the handstands, the splits, learning how to do downward dog properly, right? Like, and then all of a sudden you have this whole niche of people who are strictly anatomy experts, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but they call themselves yoga teachers, but they probably have never really understood yogic philosophy to the extent that it needs to be understood. And they probably also don't have a uh, understanding of the history of yoga in in its proper context. Um, They probably have no understanding of the Indian culture and all of the history politically of India and how that also affected the yoga practice. So it's going to be very, very hard for any one person to really decolonize their practice without all of these understandings. And again, you can't decolonize without community. So it's going to really take an entire community to decolonize a spiritual practice that most people don't even have an understanding of what it is. 
So when I talk to people and, and I tell them, you know, decolonization is actually for people of color, they kind of look at me crazy. <laughs> They're like, you know, what do you mean? I thought I could decolonize, right? Depending on your identity, it really is impossible to decolonize. So what do you do instead? What is the learning for whiteness? The learning there is actually called unsettling. So if you think about settler colonials, right? They settled. So what, we, what whiteness needs to do is unsettle. Decolonization is a practice for people of color, the marginalized, the oppressed, those on the margins. Unsettling is the practice of white folks. So white folks can learn, how do I take whiteness out of the appropriated spiritual practice that I am learning right now or that I'm practicing um, or even that I'm teaching, right? So if you are somebody who is attempting to unsettle, what you're actually attempting to do is take out that colonial mindset that tells you that you are the center of the world, right? Like you are entitled to, to practice this. You are entitled to teach this even though you don't fully have the understanding of what this actually means or is, or, you know, the cultural references or the cultural traditions, right? Like whiteness and white supremacy will tell you as long as you took that certification, you're good to go. So how do you do that? So how do you take out that colonial mentality that tells you you're the center of the world and then decenter yourself? So that's where we uh, as educators, we talk about decentering whiteness. So what I always tell people is the way that you decenter whiteness from any spiritual practice, any space, um, panels, discussions, media, Hollywood, music, anything like that, is you begin to start stop seeing whiteness as the be all end all, as the, the status quo, right? You start seeing whiteness as whiteness. It's just human beings. And so when you decenter whiteness, then you can really start centering all the other marginalized people and oppressed people that you have allowed yourself to forget about and that society wants you to forget about and wants you to other. And you start seeing them in their full humanity. And so once you start to decenter whiteness from any spiritual practice that has been appropriated, now we can really start doing some work. But what does that take? It takes uh, getting out of individualism. So if you want to look up individualism, it's basically you are making everything about yourself. Your experience is the only experience or the only valid experience, etc. So it, it incorporates a lot of ego. But guess what? The yoga practice in its philosophy and its ideology is about dismantling the ego. So if you're not really practicing uh, that, <laughs> then you're not really practicing yoga, right? Because that's yeah. in its essence, that's what it's meant to do. So once you start to figure out, okay, how do I decenter myself or how do I decenter whiteness from the equation? Now I can start to center all of these other people's lived experience. Now I can start to center all of these other cultures. So now that I've done that, and we're still, again, just talking about yoga and wellness. Now that I've done that, then I can start to center the, the people, the indigenous people whose practice it is that I am attempting to learn. So once you start centering those people, then you really have to take yourself out of the equation. And for a lot of white folks, that's very hard to do because then they start going into 
travesty mode, right? Like they're like, oh, well, now I can't teach yoga. (laughs) Now I can't do this thing. Now you're telling me I can't, right? And they start, you know, uh, making it about gatekeeping. So that takes a lot of work in itself. And, but that's unsettling. That's the, the practice of unsettling. You recognize that you are a settler colonial who is appropriating a practice that is not yours and does not belong to you. And through that process of unsettling, you're learning that on the personal side, how to decenter yourself as a white person who has been taught your whole life that everything is revolved around you. All of a sudden, the world doesn't revolve around you. And all of a sudden, you can start to see the humanity of all of these other people who, you know, society has taught you to other. So then what happens then? So now your entire world has changed. Now you start seeing things from a different perspective. And that's when we can really start to talk about things like unconscious bias or biases in general. Um, And then we can really start to dismantle white supremacy. But all of that takes time. That's not a 200-hour training. (laughs) Definitely not. Definitely not. And I just, I hadn't heard that term before, unsettling. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's just, it really does so much. And just keeping those words in mind, um, decentering, unsettling is, is a helpful point of orientation. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's, um, it's not, that term is not mainstream for a reason, right? Decolonization has really been swept up by the media. It's been swept up by marketing people. It's, it's really become this uh, term that has been so watered down that nobody really has the true meaning of it. And because, you know, there's been so many people that have come, you know, mentors and teachers and authors and uh, philosophers that have really attempted to discuss what decolonization actually means, those people are people of color. And so because they are people of color, society, white supremacy, decides that they are not valid to learn from, right? They are not as valid as this white person teaching about this other thing, right? So a lot of the the mentors that we really should be learning from, so for instance, I'll throw out one name, France Fanon. He was a black philosopher who, um, uh, I believe he died somewhere around the 60s, maybe 70s. And he was one of the main influences for the Black Panther Party, for the Young Lords, for a bunch of other activists that were right around the civil rights um, era. And what he taught was true decolonization for people of color. It's how do we decolonize our mindsets away from this colonial mentality that we have learned to internalize as people of color. And then we continue to perpetuate it by our actions, by how we operate in whiteness, how how we allow white supremacy to, to act in its supremacist ways. And then he really taught people of color how to empower themselves to operate in a very different way. But those aren't the people that we're learning from in in school, right? And there's a big battle about critical race theory right now and how it shouldn't be taught in schools. It was never taught in schools. And I can tell you from experience of having lived in a place like Puerto Rico and then moving to the United States, um, the, the education system in the United States needs to be radically changed. There is... Nothing, no critical race theory at any point in time in the school system. 
And what children of color are actually learning is to center whiteness. It's to make whiteness the standard. And how do we do that? We do that by attempting to be white, attempting to um, operate just as white folks do, even if we don't necessarily want to be white ourselves. Um, we learn how to adopt capitalism. Uh, we learn how to adopt all of these different white supremacist ideologies that oppress us. But at the same time, we aim to be just, just that way because we have been told for so long, that's how you're successful. And that's how society will embrace you if you adopt these ideologies. So it's a never ending cycle for us. But we're right. never going to learn that. <laughs> and it's certainly white folks are never going to learn that because we don't center true revolutionaries because true revolutionaries go against the status quo, not for it. And if we really learn from the true revolutionaries, we would have to decenter whiteness. So white folks who are reading Frantz Fanon and want to implement some of his teachings, you're not going to be able to implement all of them because they weren't meant for you. They were meant to empower people of color. But you can learn how to unsettle, meaning how to decolonize your own mindset away from the status quo, away from constantly centering whiteness, constantly only wanting to be uh, validated all of the time. And whiteness has a real issue with, um, with identity as well. You know, whiteness loves to racialize other people, but forget that whiteness is a race that they created. <laughs> so right, right. It, it's one of those things where the, there's so much complexity and nuance involved that it, it's going to take a lot of learning, a lot of unlearning and a lot of commitment because a lot of people love to get into, you know, decolonization and then they leave it, you know, a couple months later after one workshop, after several workshops, after five years. And then they think I've, you know, I've learned everything I need to learn. Let me keep doing what I've been doing. But I have this understanding, right? So therefore, because I have the understanding, then I'm fine, right? I'm okay. And they never implement. And the implementation is the important part. Yeah, I, I appreciate how you keep emphasizing that. It's just like, like anything in our lives, when we learn something or have an insight, if we're, not, if we're not implementing it, if we're not weaving it into our everyday, it's just, it, it's, it's useless pretty much. Exactly, yeah. And to it, put the rubber to the road. Exactly. And when it really comes to, you know, down to it, if we're really talking about, you know, what would it take to decolonize yoga? Well, what would it look like if the 90% of white studio owners decided to, you know, give the keys to the studio to an indigenous um, person who's teaching yoga and who has an ancestral lineage and line and, and those teachings have been passed down to them? What would that look like? That to a white person looks incredibly radical. It, it's, it, it's almost like, oh my God, I could never do that. Like I've built this business. I deserve a spot in this. I've built my life around this, right? Like that's the individualism that I'm talking about. So white, white folks really don't want to decolonize because what it would actually take to decolonize means it, you have to step aside. And people, for the most part, don't want to step aside. What they want to do is continue being in the space, but integrate a few things here and there, right? Like change enough to where I'm still comfortable. But decolonial work is not comfortable work, not for people of color, and it's not, certainly not comfortable for white folks. So 
the conversation that we really are, you know, talking about is not really decolonial. It's actually how do I live my life in an anti-racist way and making sure that I'm not continuing to cause any additional harm. So basically we're talking about harm reduction versus decolonization, which is all about decentering, right? Passing the mic, stepping aside, not making yourself the expert in somebody else's cultural practice, not continuing to appropriate, right? That is a different conversation that I don't think a lot of people are ready for. Some are, and I've met them, but a lot of people, for the most part, that's not what they're willing to do. So we all just have to be really honest with ourselves about where we're at and how much we're willing to give up and how much commitment we actually have to get there. And you mentioned, I, I made a note of this at the beginning of our conversation, um, just about kind of your your definition of the, or your, your perception of the wellness industry and how you realize that it's really just westernized wellness. And you, I think you touched on that as well at the very start of our conversation when, when you were talking about bureau cards and how even mm-hmm. just divination practices are also that that are very mainstream, they're all very white. And I'm wondering if you can speak more to this westernized wellness versus, I don't know what, what the opposite you would call it, like um, decolonized wellness or some other term, but um, I think that's an interesting thing to, to look at as well. For sure. Yeah, and it's a conversation that I have a lot with all different identities. So the place I'm at now in my level of understanding currently is that it is possible for wellness to shift towards being a lot more holistic than it currently is. So if we take a look at the wellness industry in particular in the West, we're really talking about a mixture of things, right? There's a lot of, you know, crystals. uh, There's a lot of tarot. There's a lot of Reiki, breath work, yoga. um, And, you know, sometimes witchcraft is involved in there. Now, which type of witchcraft? That's a whole other thing, right? Like there's different types of witchcraft and all of that gets mixed in um, as well. And so we're talking about, you know, basically what Western folks adopting and choosing what they want from different cultures um, and their spiritual practices and then adopting them into the American way, which is give me the quick fix, give me the thing that's going to make me feel the best and and the least uh, uncomfortable, right? So that's where we're at. Where I feel like we need to be going is moving away from the appropriation of other people's practices and really going towards a reclamation. And white folks can do reclamation work too, right? So what is whiteness, right? Whiteness is a construct. It's not a fact. It's not a reality. It is a lived experience. And it is also the status quo. But it is not, you know, whiteness is also made up of a whole bunch of different things. And depending on your, um, you know, ethnicity or lived experience, uh, sorry, or race, then you're going to experience whiteness in a multitude of ways, right? So um, it used to be that whiteness was very specific to uh, Europe, right? So anybody who was British, anybody who was, um, and it was a very specific type of British person, right? Um, And then other, you know, folks who were around that same region were considered white. Everybody else was not. And then through time, 
particularly once the United States became the, you know, colonized United States, right, Turtle Island, um, then whiteness began adopting other people based on anti-blackness. So if you had white skin, but for instance, if you were Irish, typically you would not be considered white. You would be considered Irish. And that would not necessarily be a person of color, but it wouldn't be considered white. But then over time, because of anti-blackness and because of racism, Irish folks were then adopted into whiteness. And so they could then claim to be white and then they could operate in that power dynamic as well. And then over time, Jewish folks, some Jewish folks, right, depending on their uh, melanin, <laughs> the amount of melanin that they had on their skin, they were then also adopted into whiteness, whereas before they were definitely not. So that's just the history of race as it relates to whiteness. So now when we're talking about wellness and reclamation specifically, the work that I do one-on-one uh, -on -one with white folks who are in wellness and are trying to move away from appropriation, what I let them know is take a look at your ancestral line. What, what ethnicities do you hold? What identities do you hold? Because you're not just white. You are maybe British, you are um, Irish, you are all of these other things, right? And so take a look at that ancestral line and start digging, start digging into that history, start, uh, you know, whatever living, um, you know, uh, family members you have right now, start asking them questions. What were some of the practices that they passed down? A lot of people, uh, white folks specifically, don't realize that a lot of their um, traditional, you know, cultural practices were passed down, but they consider it American. But American is a colonized region. It, you know, it's not, it, you're not Native American, right, if you're white. So you have cultural practices from before your ancestors colonized the Americas. So go back to that, right? Start reclaiming that. That is very similar to the work that people of color are doing as well, except we're doing it in, in a very different way because we, um, by way of colonization and being oppressed, it's a little harder for us, right? We don't always have the luxury of knowing where our ancestors came from. We have to do a lot more digging and sometimes we will never know because of uh, the, the transatlantic slave trade, because of genocide, because of all of these things that whiteness imposed on us. But whiteness has the privilege of being able to have that genealogy and that family line and that ancestral line for the most part intact. And so if you can go back to that, that's your reclamation process. But then you also have to be careful because what um, tends to happen is that, again, colonial westernized mentality will step in and say, OK, well, I learned that I'm Irish. Therefore, now I'm going to be teaching and practicing all of these Irish um, indigenous practices. Right. But you're doing it from a westernized mind. You're doing it from a colonized mind. So what happens then is now you're disrespecting your ancestors lineage by not truly understanding what it is that you're practicing. And then again, we go through the cycle of appropriation. So it's very important for everyone to understand what reclaiming actually means. It means you have to go through a whole ton of work. You have to also be very respectful, especially of the elders and the people who have really kept um, practices intact and people who are willing to share them with you. Because for people of color, some practices 
they're very guarded. You will never be able to fully understand the, the uh, fullness of a spiritual practice unless you are 100% integrated into that community because they are so careful to make sure that that practice is not appropriated for a good reason. And so for whiteness, it's the same deal. You have to make sure that you're not then saying, okay, I'm leaving yoga alone, for example, and now I'm going to go off into, you know, indigenous Irish practices, but then you're disrespecting that practice. You have to take your time. You have to really listen to the elders. You have to listen to the people who have kept that lineage going um, and make sure that you're, you know, really honoring your own ancestral, uh, ancestral line, I mean, um, so, you know, it's all identities can do reclamation work, but you can't do it from a colonized mindset. Yeah, super helpful. And yeah, I love how you're circling back to this, the reclamation and what it looks, what it looks like us, for us as white people and, and how, again, it's like, we just, we just keep coming back to, there's no quick fix. Right. It's, it's um, it requires a, a lot of effort and yes. a lot of a lot of care. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, you know, you mentioned you mentioned the things that the divination practice that you're studying now. And I'm curious what what other components are part of your spiritual practice these days. Yeah, I mean, for that, I think um, you know, I already shared one component. I think I will always uh, keep you know meditation as a practice, and that is, you know, definitely something my ancestors practiced, um, and I will continue to practice that. And for other things, you know, I think I'll keep them to myself. <laughs> sure. But, yes. Yeah, but I think you know something that is very universal to a lot of indigenous um, folks, traditions and cultures is reflection, taking time to reflect, especially in nature and whatever element it is that you are most drawn to. For me, it's water. So you will always, you know, find me living by the water, by the ocean, going to the beach. Like that's, that's really where I feel the most comfortable and the most in my element. Um, so that's something that I practice often is just being by water, surrounded by water, um, and, and always keeping fluidity in my heart and in my mind. Um, but also strength, you know, water is a very strong, very, can be very fierce, powerful thing. Um, so as, you know, as it has its components of clarity and its components of cleansing and freshness, it can also be very fierce, very powerful. So that is something that um, I really connect to and has been a part of my practice since I was little. Um, but that's something that a lot of people, you know, can relate to, right? It's that level of um, being connected to something that isn't material necessarily, for instance, like money or, um, you know, laptops or technology or things like that, right? Like, I think when you are choosing to have a connection that's deeper than just the surface level, um, nature is a really great teacher and, and a really great way to get there. Um, so that's what I would say. And what is your current growing edge? Huh. 
<laughs> that 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 you that you feel willing to share. Yeah. Growing edge. I think you know I'm always I'm always at that edge. I feel like I feel like I never get I've never gotten to a place where I'm like, "Oh yeah, I fully understand this." Um I feel like I'm constantly learning, constantly growing, constantly implementing what I'm learning. Um everything is trial and error. So, you know, right now what I'm learning about most is, you know, relationship with humans, right? Like mm-hmm. how how do I drastically change the way I communicate with people um so that it's mutually beneficial not just for myself. And that's something that, you know, through implementation, I'm I sometimes I mess up, sometimes I do it well. Um, sometimes, you know, it feels a little like messy, <laughs> yeah. but for the most part, I feel like that is something that, um, I'm really excited to continue to learn how to do. Um, and, and I'm doing that, you know, through romantic relationship, through friendships, through familial, um, you know, family structures and stuff like that. So that I think, I feel like that might be something that I'm always at the edge of learning. And you've shared so much with us today. Um, thank you so much I, for just all the wisdom that, that you've brought here. And I just want to leave one final chance if there's anything else you'd like to share or to leave our listeners with. Yeah, I mean, there's so much more to say. Yes. <laughs> so much more that we can to talk To be about. continued. Right, yeah. right. No, I think... Um, I think, you know, what I always want people to leave with is these things are, because of their complexity, they're going to make you feel any type of way. Some people, you know, will be in conversation with me and they'll get very excited because it strikes their curiosity. Um, Other times people will be very upset. (laughs) They will be very triggered. They will feel very challenged. Um, and then some other people are like, okay, I hear you and, and I'm, I'm going to think about it. <laughs> but what I always want people to know is that, you know, we're all going through this process of, you know, being human in our own time and in our own way. Um, but what I always want specifically people of color to know is that they, their experiences are real and they are, you know, valid. Um, and that we are specifically as a greater community, marginalized and oppressed community, despite our ethnic differences and cultural differences, we as a group are really moving into a space where um, it's becoming more and more um, available to us to be empowered and to share that empowerment with other people. Whereas before, if you were an empowered person, you really couldn't share that with other people. You couldn't let it be known because you'd be persecuted. So we are at a very interesting time in space where we can begin to share that with minimal persecution. Doesn't mean there aren't, you know, ever going to be consequences because of white supremacy, but it is starting to um, feel very different. So a lot of the things that my ancestors couldn't do, I, I am now able to do. Um, and, and that feels very special. So that's the one thing that I, that I would share. 
And how can listeners find out more about you or do you have any, do you have any um, programs or upcoming events that you want to let us know about? Yes. So I have um, my website, which is embodyinclusivity.com. And you'll be able to find um, a lot of the courses, a lot of the information about programs and things like that on there. Um, You can connect with me mostly on Instagram. That's the platform that I choose to use and communicate with people. You're welcome to DM me and tag me and things and stuff like that. And we share my posts there. So my Instagram is eliana.shanea. And um, on my website, you will also find all of my courses and my trainings. So I have pre-recorded courses and trainings, and then I also have um, live courses that you will be able to know about through my newsletter and my Instagram. I share it there too. So currently I am in collaboration with my dear friend, Maisha of Check Your Privilege. And we are in August, uh, I believe August 17th, we are starting another cohort of Check Your Privilege Create Equity. And that is a four week long course. Um, It's welcome to all identities, but particularly to white folks who uh, are wanting to move towards more allyship, co-conspiratorship and all of that. Um, So that is the next course that is available. And then later in the fall, there will be some more courses available for all identities. So that's where you can find me. Fantastic. And I'll include those links in the show notes as well. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So Constanza Eliana, I'm so, um, I'm so grateful that I came across you and your, your beautiful work. I've just feel your power. Mm. I feel your brightness. I feel your tenacity, your creativity, and just so appreciate you sharing it with us today and appreciate the journey that you've been on and the beauty and the service that you are creating and have created as a result of that. It's really remarkable. And I just look forward to continuing to learn from you and just see all the new ways that you'll you'll grow and you'll serve. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining me and for taking this time out for yourself. If you enjoyed today's episode, I'd be very grateful if you'd take a moment to rate and review this podcast. That way other women who might enjoy it can better find it. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. And until next time, I'm sending you my heartfelt support.